Okay, welcome back to the podcast. We've got a budget coming up, and more so than in some years, there's a fair amount of speculation about what the Chancellor might do on pensions. Andrew Tully from Canada Life joined me to talk through some of the key issues, and we also wrap up with a bit of a look ahead to what a Labour government might do after the general election in a couple of years' time. So, Andy Tully, welcome, welcome back, because you are a repeat offender, because you've been invited more than once. So, welcome uh, back uh, to indeed. the podcast. It's good so, to be back. Thank you. So, we've got a couple of things going on that I think would be really good for us just to dig into a bit. I think mainly this is politics. So, we're looking at pensions and retirement savings and uh, the forthcoming budget, and there's been quite a lot of activity around all of that. And you get... You know, it's a standing joke in the industry, isn't it? So there's a there's a budget coming, so we better have a panic about tax relief and you know use your allowances now, and they're going to cut something. And you know, mostly these panics are proved to be unfounded. But then occasionally it turns out the industry was right to to press the panic button a bit. And and there's certainly been quite a lot of chatter around all of this. So I want to spend some time with you on the budget stuff. I think it's also perhaps just worth touching on because we're talking mostly pensions today. Of course, we had the the FCA launch their uh, retirement advice review a couple of weeks ago, and this is the never-ending story of the FCA trying to regulate retirement incomes in a post-pension freedom world. And it it's, doesn't look like it's any closer to being finished than it was in 2015. And I think mostly they're looking at retirement advice this time round, but this yep. falls into the context of consumer duty as well. So I, I thought it's just worth kind of acknowledging that. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts around where that review is likely to take us as we go through 2023. Yeah, so, so I think you're right. I think it's, this is focused on advisors, but very much, but we're tying in with consumer duty. So, so about trying to make sure clients get good outcomes. It's slightly bizarre that we are eight years on, very close to eight years on from, from pension freedom and, and, and they're looking at the impact of the pension freedoms because, you know, it's almost like it had a dramatic effect on day one, let alone eight years later. So, so it seems slightly behind the curve, I guess, uh, to, to, to be looking at this, but, but I guess they've been tied up on on DB transfers quite a lot over, over the last few years and trying to trying to close that stable door. Will it have an impact on advisors? Yes, I think it will. I think it, it probably broadens things out. Uh, so, so around our clients getting the suitable products, uh, are they aware of what those product risks are? And, and and that's not looking at any one product. Obviously, each product has its own risks and benefits. So, so it's, it's trying to make sure that clients are aware of the, the benefits and risks of, of what product solution they might be using, whether that's drawdown, whether that's annuity. Probably looking at combinations of those, and, and that's something that's probably not been used enough in the market, is, is you know blending of different solutions and whether that's using both at one time or or maybe using different uh, solutions consecutively. Mm-hmm. So, so it might be that as someone maybe gets into 75, 80, they can buy an annuity at that age might be a solution. And, and that, uh, you could argue that pension freedoms are probably too young in some ways to have got to that kind of level. But we are seeing more and more clients going beyond age 75 and drawdown, which you know, is relatively new because drawdown's been around for, for quite a while. But most, you know, historically, most people exited drawdown, certainly by 75, but probably early 70s. So this concept of people going, 
you know, late 70s into the 80s still being invested in the retirement market is, is relatively new. For some clients, that is absolutely the right thing and, and they'll be perfectly able to cope. For others, that, that might raise new difficulties. So, so things like vulnerabilities and things, and obviously vulnerability is not just about age, but there are, you know, cognitive decline and things like that, that may happen to more people as they move through later life. So so still being invested in making investment decisions may be more difficult for some people in, in those later life period. And the regulator is pretty hot on vulnerable customers, isn't it? They are, yeah. So, so I think this... this a lot of this decumulation review, will, will, I don't think it will be new things. I think it's pulling together all these different strands that we've been talking about previously. And, and consumer duty is very much like that, isn't it? It's it's pulling together lots of strands that we've we've talked about either under different banners or different guises before, but trying to make sure that the sum of the parts is, is greater. So, so so things like vulnerable customers absolutely will be brought in, you know, sustainability of income levels, uh, as the same, uh, you know, are sufficient people buying annuities, particularly probably now that annuity rates are, have, have moved back to a good level. So, so there's never been an argument for the last few years, people not buying annuities. And I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting annuities are the right thing for all people because they're absolutely not. And they'll remain, you know, a, a solution for, for some people. And, and certainly most advised clients will continue to use drawdown to a large degree. But for some elements, maybe a portion of your income, you know, to, to guarantee a certain level of expenditure, an annuity might be right for some people. Or, you know, a fixed term annuity, which, which gives a, a certain some level of income for a period of time. So, so some form of secure income for some people, I think, definitely plays a part. And I think that will, will become part of this decumulation review. There's been a lot of talk about value for money. And I also wonder whether we're going to see greater scrutiny brought to bear on the overall cost, thinking about consumer duty and this value chain question, you know, by the time you've thrown in the platform costs and the investment costs and the advisory costs, it's not to say the customer isn't getting good value, but, you know, the cost layers add up. And I think there might be quite an interesting challenge for some advisory propositions for some product providers to say, well, when my product or when my service is hooked to someone else's product or service, you know, is the total value chain still good value for the customer? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, FC has been talking about value for money for quite a long time. And, and I think as long as you keep talking about value for money and not cheap is best, and I, I think that's that's key. But you're right, you know, we, we've looked at that from an investment point of view, providers, workplace pensions, you know, platforms to some degree, and, and the focus will, won't go off all of those parts, but advisory fees have perhaps not had the same focus. And I think there will be some element of focus in there. For a lot of advisors, that's just absolutely making sure that they document and record accurately all the services that they're giving people because I think a lot of advisors do things outside of annual reviews and things like that. And, and the question is, is that kind of being documented and the, the benefit of that being documented to the client? You know, so, so I was talking to an advisor recently and he said, client had phoned them up just, just to talk about, you know, something they'd been offered and, and you know, the advisor thinks that there's a good chance it was a scam. So, so he was talking to a person about actually, you know, tread very carefully because that, that was absolutely nothing really to do with advice or, or any solution or something like that. That was just a, you know, a conversation, you know, a, a trusted person conversation type thing. But but nonetheless, probably documenting that and, and demonstrating that they're giving, you know, added value and that kind of thing. Uh, again, it, 
you know, it's not all about product solution. It's not all about investment. So, so tax advice and advice around annual allowance and lifetime allowance and all these kind of things are hugely valuable. But it's making sure that that's all documented and, and clear and, and easy for the regulator to see if, if they do happen to, to wander in. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so I'm going to start with a quote, which is from the, uh, we've got this budget coming up and there's a lot of attention being focused on pensions. I'm going to start with a quote from our friends over at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, who said in a report they published a week or so ago, the current system of pensions tax provides overly generous tax breaks to those with the biggest pensions, those with high retirement incomes and those receiving big employer pension contributions. It does relatively little to support many of those facing low income in retirement who need it most. Reducing limits on pension saving, the route taken in recent years, is not a good solution. It does nothing to support low earners, adds significant complexity, and leaves subsidies that are all too generous for some. A long-term vision for the system is needed. So I think that's an interesting context in which to approach the budget. But you knew that, Andrew, sure. because you were at the IFS pension report launch event a couple of weeks ago so um, what, what, what did you make of it all i thought it was it was a really interesting report but partly it was really interesting because we didn't go for for, for let's change up front tax relief so, so so that in itself makes it stand out from from lots of things we've seen over the last 10 years and in fact not even that but it was nice that they they dug a little deeper on and pulled out some of the reasons why changing up front tax relief isn't actually uh, necessarily the be all and end all and it's actually quite difficult and particularly when you start to look at db schemes which is where you know the vast majority of tax relief goes mm. and and employer contributions to you know going into db schemes perhaps to fill up deficits and things like that and how you would treat those from, from a tax perspective so so it was good from that point of view it, it was also it was interesting just because of the pure breadth and depth of what they looked at so so they certainly didn't just look at one one issue in isolation. They looked absolutely across the whole spectrum of of tax changes around pensions. And no one's going to debate that pension tax is hugely complicated. And and I think sometimes when you stand back and and they, you know, somebody like that walks through all the different touch points of pensions and tax. It's only when you start to do that, that you realise how complex all of this actually is. There's so many different tax things that we can look at and, and potentially alter and lots of levers that can be pulled. And, and, and so that simplification point, absolutely, I completely agree with him. And interesting to hear uh, David Gork was speaking at the event as well, someone who'll be familiar to anyone who's been in the industry more than a few years and was a really influential figure in the coalition government going back a few years. Yeah, so, so David's worked in the, in the Treasury for a long time, so has, you know, good knowledge of, of pensions, but certainly of, of the tax environment that pensions work in, absolutely. So, so, so yes, it was interesting to hear his views. And, and you know, I think he was speaking on, on his behalf rather than the government's behalf. But uh, to, to give those kind of political insights into some of the potential or the proposed changes was an interesting, uh, you know, so I, I don't know if you want to talk about the particular issues at the moment, but tax-free cash was one of the ones that IFS obviously touched on, uh, and I think Resolution Foundation have also touched on that recently, which was potentially capping the tax-free cash element of pensions. You know, from, from me, from a personal point of view, 
tax-free cash, bizarrely, is, is one of the few bits that people, to me, probably do understand. It's one of the quite straightforward bits. I think if you ask pension scheme members about pension tax, they'll generally be fairly confused, but I think most of them know that there's a tax-free lump sum that they get at retirement and, and you know, using that, whether that's to pay off debt or, or you know, pay off mortgage or go on holiday or whatever it happens to be, I think people do kind of look forward to that and know that that's part of the system. So so I think touching it is is difficult from that perspective. Uh, it was interesting to hear David talk about the potential political difficulties of touching, and he did think there was be political difficulties in doing so, partly because it was popular and people do understand it, partly because... I think he thought government would have concerns about any retrospective element of it. And, and obviously, if, if you did introduce it, and, and let's put kind of protections and things to the side, but if you did introduce it now and say £100,000 is the most tax-free cash you can get or something like that, that that would have a big impact on people who built up pension savings over you know, 30, 40 years, potentially. So, so could you do that in a retrospective way? And would the government run the risk of, of facing legal challenges and things for doing so? And so I think he felt for that reason that it would need to be either introduced gradually or, you know, some protection element brought to it. And obviously anything like that, A, in, increases complexity, but B, also just uh, reduces the type of potential tax take that government get from it and certainly the tax take in the early years that government would get from, from a measure like this. Yeah, no, you make a really good point. And look where we ended up with the lifetime allowance protections, which are done with good reasons, but are just horrible, right? It's just yes. like, could you, could you just get rid of those, please? You know, so there's, there's that. I mean, the IFS was suggesting tax-free components should be capped at, say, 25% of, say, the first £400,000. So yeah. if your pot's worth less than, say, around half a million, you'd, you'd, you'd still get your tax-free lump sum, but then you're bigger, the bigger your pot after that, the less you'd get. But you make a really good point about the retrospection, and I think given how the Treasury sort of bent over backwards to not retrospectively change the rules in regard to the normal minimum pension age where you know they were they were changing the rules about when you would be able to access your pensions but then tied in some rights and protections for people whose contracts said they could get the money a bit earlier you know to then not do that in terms of the tax free lump sum which as you say is a central appeal of the pension saving system would be really difficult and then as you say you know if you start making exemptions and protections and phasing it in gradually you start to diminish the the, the fiscal benefits the government are doing it in the first place so yeah and, and we just like need to look at normal minimum pension age and look at you know what a dog's dinner we can make of, of pension regulation if, if we try hard enough you know it's it's a horrific piece of 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 regulations, so, so so certainly wouldn't want to see that replicated in, in, in anywhere else. And I think that's one of those ones where, certainly for the tax-free lump sum, it's very difficult for this government at this stage of the political cycle to, to, to even think about that kind of thing. I mean, like, we'll maybe get proved wrong and someone's listening to this podcast in a few weeks' time after the budget. They can point and laugh at our ignorance. But I think here and now, ahead of the budget, it looks to me pretty unlikely that they've got the capacity to do that kind of thing right now. I think so. And I think the timing point, I think you, you, you make a good point, you know, we shouldn't overlook the fact we're, we're, you know, 18, 20 months out from a general election. Looking forward, looking back, the way we're, we're, it's only six months ago that we were in 
you know, political and market turmoil. Uh, and so, so there's probably quite a difficult political balancing act that they don't want to go too big because of what happened six months ago. They probably want to be relatively boring, but also 18 months before is maybe not the time to be giving away carrots because, you know, is it too far out from, from that election? So, so I think, you know, a year from now is, is probably the potential budget where, where there might be some giveaways or tax cuts or whatever it happens to be because that's, you know, six months by that point, six, eight months away potentially from a general election. So so in some ways, it wouldn't greatly surprise me if this was a relatively dull budget ju- just because of its timing from a political point of view. Well, I absolutely agree with that. And I want to come on to the money purchase annual allowance, which was something that the IFS was singularly silent on. But, but just before we go there, I wanted to pick up a couple of the things they did talk about. I kind of agree with your analysis that it's quite hard for the government to do anything really significant on pensions at this stage. I thought it was interesting that they talked about reforming the lifetime allowance, making it more generous. You know, okay, that's interesting. The IFS is arguing for higher lifetime allowances, getting rid of the tapering of the annual allowance. And I think there's a lot of people in the industry that will be reacting by saying, like, well, where do I sign? You know, that sounds interesting. But then they also revisited something Paul Johnson's talked about before, which is tightening up the death taxes on pensions and, and the IFS's sure. argument. And I kind of agree with them on this. Is It's just bonkers to allow people so much money to wash out of the pension system largely tax-free and to create an incentive that encourages people not to draw on their pensions. If you're into IHT planning, don't draw your pension. But But again, I think... It will be quite hard for this government to do that kind of stuff at this point. I think so. I think any Conservative government tinkering with inheritance taxes, probably not its natural home. It's probably not what we're necessarily Conservative government wants to go to. We know IHT is, is a is a disliked tax, even though you know quite a you know quite a very small proportion of the population will at the moment pay that. It is very much disliked. Uh, I think extending it to pensions is would politically is is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, I think the, the tax charge on deaths before seventy five, logically that does make sense. I mean, I can to take a step back. This wasn't an accident. You know, some bits of pension tax would kind of stumbled our way into over the years and, and things. The death situation that we're in was specifically designed by George Osborne and his team in, in 2014 and and they majored on that as part of the reforms, how how efficient they were. So so this was designed, this this was a, a you know a decision made. Whether, whether we agree with that decision or not, this was a decision that was made and designed to, to make. Having said all that, as I say, age seventy-five, you can you can definitely argue is a random age, and why should someone who you know who dies at seventy-four years, nine months, be treated fundamentally differently from someone that dies at seventy-five and three months? Again, you you always kind of have some lines like that in all sorts of legislation. You, you might have lines that you fall one side of a other. So so in that way, it's not unusual. But taxing people on death for income tax before seventy-five. Yeah, logic would, would say that probably does make sense. In in terms of earnings potential from the government, it it's actually pretty low because most people survive beyond seventy five. So 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 as a tax generator, it's not it's not a big one by any means. I think for me, a, a much more logical stance would be to align it to something like state pension age and say if you died before state pension age, income tax free afterwards 
you're paying income tax and and that would have more logic to me than aligning it to an age 75 date because you could argue if you die before state pension age you're kind of arguably you're still working you're still of working age you might be more likely to have a younger family type can who, who might benefit so, so so that would make more logic to me than 75 but Again, I'm, I'm not completely convinced that GoGoGo are at, at this point in time. So the, the final thing that the IFS touched on, and again, I thought this was interesting, was they looked at the national insurance contribution reliefs. And one suggestion they made was to give NICS relief on employee contributions, but then load it onto the pension incomes instead, along with side that to decouple the subsidy on employer NICS relief, and this got a bit complicated, but I kind of see where they were going with this. Small employers don't pay NICS. So take away the, the tax-free NICS element for employers and instead create an upfront subsidy that you could then give to all employers. So they were quite keen on pretty fundamental redesign of the way national insurance contributions are treated with regard to pension contributions. To me, what they were suggesting made sense but I think there's a real risk of bringing complexity back into the system again. And you talked earlier on about the, you know, the problems of yeah, that. I have to say, for me sitting listening, to, what you said was logical, absolutely, to have different systems for income tax, national insurance, and it, it doesn't make sense. My, my kind of overriding feeling listening to it all was, in fact, why do we even have income tax and national insurance? Why don't we just have one tax? Yeah. And I know that's politically a whole different concept and, and usually difficult, but that's the ultimate thing isn't it is is actually just get rid of national insurance altogether and just just have income tax and and and, and that's much simpler altogether and then you get rid of all the salary sacrifice and all those kind of you know side issues where some people might benefit and some people don't because the way that employer operates things just to have income tax and not to have these two different things you know, you know, particularly because you know we we know, we know national insurance is not ring fenced in the way that it was, mm. you know, nominally set up to be so many years ago. It, it's just a general taxation now, in the same way as income tax. So, from a simplicity point of view, just having one would be much much simpler. But I, I equally understand that politically, that is massively unlikely to happen. You're not going to win many friends for doing it. It's not like something you can point to going into the next general election and say, look, behold what I did with simplification of tax. And the yeah. voters are going to go, yeah, what about my kids' education? What about, they, what, what about the NHS? That's what I actually care about. So Absolutely. that feels like you know, a government with a big majority in the first year or two of a new government could lift the lid on that one if they really felt like it. And then I was kind of surprised because you guys at Canada Life have been talking about the money purchase annual allowance. Tom Selby's been on about it, Stephen Cameron, Steve Lowe. You know, there's a lot of people across the industry who are now pointing at the money purchase annual allowance saying, whatever else you do, fix that. The IFS actually was, was silent on that one, which quite surprised me. But just talk a bit about that. Why have you called for, for the money purchase annual allowance to be put back up to 10,000? Okay, so, so I guess there's, there's a range of, of issues. One is it, it's quite an easy thing to do in isolation. So we can effectively amend the money purchase annual allowance in isolation without really, you know, you, you lift the bonnet to do that. You don't, you're not touching necessarily other things around. So, so it feels quite a straightforward, simple change to make that doesn't need, you know, massive protection regimes or complexities or, or you know, reviews to consider what impacts it might have on other things. It, it feels a relatively small standalone change that can be made 
but nonetheless one that would have a significant benefit to a whole range of people. And and also importantly, not just this is not about high earners, this is about people who are or you know, potentially relatively certainly in the southeast terms, you know, red, relatively moderate earners who, who are impacted by the money purchase annual loans. So so there's probably two groups of people who are affected and and one is people who have accessed the pension. Uh, over you know 55 to 60 you know early 60s whatever it happens to be and they might have done that for a bunch of reasons over the last five years so and we'll have to remember the world you know the world has changed over the last few years we've had lots of unexpected events so we've had obviously covid and some people might have had to access money because of covid or furlough so so lots of people and again it's easy to forget these things were were relatively recent you know so 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 people whose income level dropped because of furlough you know people were made redundant because businesses struggled after covid so so those are you know people made redundant who again might have had to access the pension just to tide the family over and then obviously we had the cost of living crisis over the last year or two so so a range of reasons that people might have had to kind of unexpectedly pop into the pension and say can i take a little bit out tide me and my family over now that's that's the great benefit of pension freedoms isn't it there's lots of things we can say about pension freedom but the ability to to take that money at a time that suits your family is is the huge benefit. And they're not doing that to gain the system. They're not doing that to drive any tax benefits. They're doing that because that helps the family. And so to then say to these people, you know, who may be earning 45, 50,000, the employers still wants to auto-enroll them 8% going in, maybe 10% or something like that, if they've got, you know, a reasonably generous employer, and that ongoing contribution is then potentially some of it's going to be taxed, just doesn't feel a very good outcome at all. It doesn't feel very good for those individuals because they're paying tax that just doesn't seem reasonable. And it doesn't seem very good for our you know, savings culture is that we might be persuading people or influencing people to stop saving in those kind of circumstances. So it's like that group, it just doesn't feel a very good solution at the moment. And then the second group is perhaps the one that maybe the government might be more interested in, which is there's been a huge amount of people in the 50s who've stepped out of the workforce over the last few years. And I think that, you know, depending on who you listen to and what stats you look at and things, but, but you know, many have dropped out. Some some maybe have started to, to move back into the workforce to some degree, but, but there still feels an untapped group of people in the 50s who have, who have stopped working. Now, now, the government would like to encourage some of these people at least to come back into the workforce and increase productivity and, and things like that. Uh, and again, the money purchase on the lines can, can act as a barrier to try and achieve those aims uh, because it might just discourage people who, who are thinking about coming back but then go, oh, actually, if I save into a pension, I'm going to be taxed. And, and again, it's not necessarily people who coming back with millions of pounds that people who are coming back with, you know, relatively moderate earnings who, who want to save a bit more as they go. So so I think there's those two main groups. And, and that's what we felt is looking at that. Again, you know, perfect solution, scrap it all together. That that would be lovely, wouldn't it? And, and you know, in a perfect simplicity point of view, that, that's probably what I would argue for. And I probably have argued for that in the past. But you know, government have some concerns about tax leakage and things like that. 
uh, or, or people gaming the system. So, so that's why we've suggested taking it up to 10,000 is trying to listen to government's concerns, but say, actually, you know what, if you get up to 10,000, that takes the vast majority, it takes it out of the equation for the vast majority of people. Certainly anyone earning less than six figures is probably unlikely to be paying in more than 10,000 a year. So, so to say to them, you know what, you can come back to work or you can continue and work after having accessed your pension, you can pay up to 10,000 and no one's going to penalise you. That, that, it feels a better solution than where we are at the moment. Yeah, no, that all makes absolute sense. And I think it's interesting when you look back at the rationalisation that the Treasury put out in 2016-17 when they pushed the MPAA down from 10,000 to 4,000. And they actually said where additional support is offered for saving after a pension has been accessed flexibly, the government wants to focus it on those who genuinely need it rather than simply chose to draw on savings and who subsequently find themselves able to rebuild some pension. People in this situation might include individuals who have been divorced or separated, have been made redundant or have been declared bankrupt. And I think your point around COVID and the cost of living crisis now means there are potentially millions of people in that category. These are the people the Treasury should be trying to help, people who have had to dip into their pensions to help themselves or their family members in their late 50s, but who do still want to carry on working, who want to rebuild their retirement savings and are now being very heavily penalised for them. I mean, this is effectively an older worker penalty, which, yes. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, given given the current employment minister, you know, who was until recently the pensions minister, you know, I, he's focused so much attention on trying to get older workers looked after and get them back into the workforce. And we heard Jeremy Hunt talking about that not long ago. To me, and, I, you know, I, I get the fact if you did, did away with the MPA altogether, you would risk people washing income through the pension system. So I understand the Treasury's concerns. But I think, it, I think it's unlikely. I, I, yeah, I don't think it's, it, it would ever manifest itself hugely. But, but I understand that, that they have concerns, which is, is, is why we've said, you know, rather than scrapping altogether is, is a significant increase to it. And actually, I mean, again, you look at the impact assessment they did at the time. I mean, for them, from the Treasury's point of view, this is this is a matter of a few tens of millions of pounds, which to you and me, Andy, is a lot of money, but to the Treasury, not so much. You know, you wouldn't actually need to get that many more people back into employment and paying income tax for the tax revenues from that to dwarf any cost to the Treasury in pushing the MPAA back up to 10,000 again. You know, to me, it's like, it's an easy win for the Treasury. They will actually make money on this. They'll get more people back into the economy. This is something that could probably pay for itself pretty quickly. I think so, and, and, and not just income tax, obviously, but d- downstream taxes like VAT and things like that, if more people are working and, and spending money and so on. So, so absolutely. And I, and I think if we go back to 2017, you know, back, back again, this one did come as a bit of a surprise at the time because we had the 10,000. It was certainly at the time I, I wasn't aware of anyone kind of advocating it having to reduce or, you know, it wasn't something that, that, that was really being discussed in the industry at all is, is any needs or any issues going around. And so, so the reduction to four, you know, came as a bit of a, a, a bolt from the blue. And the Treasury didn't really justify it to any great degree at the time. It, it ran a very short consultation saying, we're going to do this. And lots of people said, why? And they went, well, because we want to, really. It was, and, I agree. And, yeah, and, and was that, that was largely where it went. So, yeah. yes, yes. 
And, and again, you, you could argue, you know, 4,000 in 2017, now, even if you just increased this, you know, in, in line. I mean, I got, it's something the government's using to its great benefit at the moment, obviously, it's just freezing allowances generally. You know, even if we'd increased that £4,000, I'm not saying that would have gone up to 10, but but it would have increased, you know, reasonably substantially since then if, if we if we tied it to some index or whatever. So 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 I think the time's right for change. And I don't think it's it's I don't think it's a costly one for government. I think it's one that would benefit lots of people and that would benefit government. And and that's kind of the reason that we've got, we've particularly focused in on this one and, and said that we would like this to be changed from April within this budget. Yeah, that makes sense. And you've put a submission into the budget, into the Treasury on that. We have, yeah. I mean, we, we it was more than just 10,000. We, we suggested a few other bits and pieces. So, you know, if, if you really, really don't want to go to 10,000, the, the other one of our approaches we talked about was, was allowing people to join a pension scheme on normal terms. So, so again, if, if you're, you know, if your employer is paying 10% for everyone in the scheme and you're joining and you're getting 10%, then again, you're not gaming the system in any way. You're just getting the same benefit as every other employee in, in the scheme. So, you know, so some sort of carve out in that situation. Now, the problem with that is it's just a bit more complex, isn't it? So, so you know, the, the primary ask is just to put it up to 10,000. But, but again, if we didn't want to do that, there's potentially other ways that we can explore to make changes which would help people, uh, you know, affected by this. Here's hoping. Okay, really interesting. Okay, a couple of other things to, to wrap up on the budget. None of this is any use to the self-employed. And, you know, alongside this, one of the other things I've been hearing quite a lot lately is never mind pension simplification can we have a bit of ISA simplification as well so I'm just kind of interested there's I'm hearing more and more voices suggesting that a bit of ISA reform would make sense we've got too many ISAs and that that could perhaps feed into that neglected constituency of self-employed people who are definitely not saving in a pension right now so you know I'd like to think the treasury will look in that direction and maybe think about one how it could help the self-employed and two perhaps how it could simplify the ISHORS. Because like, we've got the FCA have just come out and said, I'll tell you what, we're going to introduce a new advice regime. And it's going to be an advice regime that only applies to one particular ISA situation. So if you're taking out a new conventional ISA and you're investing up to £20,000, then you can potentially have this new light touch advice regime applied. But if you want a lifetime ISA, or if you've already got £60,000 in an ISA and you want some advice on that, well, you'll have to go through the normal ISA-regulated hoops for, for advice. And I'm just like, you know, it, do, do you guys even talk to each other? It's like you, you've got a complicated system and you're about to make it more complicated. So I'd like to see a bit of movement on that front. Yeah, I mean, again, an, an ISA, at its heart, it is one of the simplest savings products you could have. And, and it probably was that when it was first introduced, mm. but... But we've now, again, layered so many layers of complexity around it. And I hate to think how many different types of ISAs we've got, probably about eight or too something, many. probably more, I don't know. Uh, but yes, absolutely, just too many is, is the basic answer. So, so yeah, just just having an ISA and letting people save on an ISA and, and, you know, stop, stop trying to make it more complicated than it needs to be. So final thoughts on all of this, just looking a little bit further out, and we've kind of hinted at this already a little bit in this conversation, I thought it was really interesting to see uh, Nicola Sturgeon doing a bit of a, a Jacinda Ardern and 
pulling the ripcord before her popularity ratings sort of went into ground rush mode because she'd probably hit people. And what is it about female politicians that kind of have an instinct to do this at the right moment <laughs> rather than getting dragged out with the fingernail marks on the, on the across the floor, which seems to happen to some other politicians. But anyway, look, Nicola Sturgeon, it feels like the chances of a Labour government coming out of the next general election have probably gone up a bit as, as the SNP currently implodes a bit and, you know, long way to go to the next election other things may happen but right now that's kind of how it feels and the thing that struck me in all of this is there are things that the current government just cannot do and we've talked a bit about some of the constraints on them in terms of pensions and their constituency of voters who are kind of like the baby boomers tend to be older more affluent voters voting conservative a new labor government comes in it's going to be a very different proposition things like tax relief rates more fundamental reform, all that stuff's going to be back on the table, isn't it? Yes. Well, I think fundamentally we don't know, really, for Labour. A, it's been quite a long time since we've had a Labour government, obviously. And B, the Labour government haven't, or the Labour Party haven't really given us much in the way of policy, really, certainly not much in the way of solid policy. So so I think we are guessing a little bit, but but I think, I think your premise is right. I think some of the, the areas which which the current government don't want to look at, I think, could certainly come under the microscope uh, with a new incoming government. And I think probably any time, you know, we'll look back in history where, where one party has been in power for an extended period, and, and I accept there was a kind of coalition and, a, and then Conservative, but nonetheless, there's been quite a long run without uh, one party being involved. And we will look back in history and that's happened the party coming in have made quite significant changes following that. So, so that's where we have sometimes seen such some more dramatic things happening than, than, than you know, than if it's just we, we sort of see a you know five-year turnaround. So yes, I, I think we could see things. It is difficult to know exactly what would what we would do, but we certainly potentially could look at you know some of the IFS proposals, for example, and think about could we split this pension tax pie differently? And I still think doing that front tax relief is difficult, and that's difficult because of defined benefit schemes. Mm-hmm. Morgan, you know, if you look at DC in isolation, could you do it? Absolutely, you could do it. Would it make sense? Yes. DB makes it difficult. And, and again, a reminder, that's where most of the tax relief goes. So that's where the big saving potentially would be is, is around DB schemes. But nonetheless, there's still other ways to, to look at simplification and cutting up that pie differently. So, so that inheritance tax is probably ripe for reform and probably has been ripe for reform for quite a number of years. And, you know, the Office for Tax Simplification, when it was around, did, did look at inheritance tax and, and say, you know, there's potential a bunch of changes and simplifications and things that could be made. That's probably difficult for, for a government to do, but but a Labour government could look at it. They've talked a lot about a wealth tax. Again, I think that's probably a difficult one in a concept to do is just because so much wealth is tied up in property and mm. other liquid assets is, is how in practice you could do that. But again, so some of those different things that, that a Conservative government probably wouldn't look at is, is a Labour government potentially could look at. And then probably the other one that we've not talked about and things could happen in this budget as well as, as state pensions. So we know that state pension age increases, obviously, we, we need to get by 7th of May, I think it is. So, so, so that, they might tie that into the budget. 
shovel that one out at six o'clock in the evening. Indeed. I mean, it seems inevitable we're going to 68. The question is just when, isn't it? But also... What what may not be looked at now, but again, uh, you know, a, a new you know Labour government if it did come in is is triple lock and is the triple lock sustainable? Do we need to to review the kind of uh, intergenerational fairness of of benefits being paid out at the moment? And and obviously that's that's hugely controversial. And depending on which side of the line you you happen to stand on, you potentially have very strong views one way or or the other. It's not necessarily a vote winner by any means, but but again, it probably is a conversa- a difficult conversation that needs to take place at some point. Is the triple lock viable and, and should it be continued? Uh, and if it doesn't continue, then what replaces it? And that, that's probably an even more difficult d- discussion to, to take place. Yeah, yeah. But as you say, this is the kind of concept I look back to, to 1997 or 2010. There are those pivotal moments in politics when it is possible to to make those kind of decisions and open those cans of worms uh, in a way that, that is becomes progressively harder the further into a regime you get. I think so and I think particularly if you do get a, a big majority and, and that's also looking very far ahead but but you know those two kind of uh, situations you referred to settle set 1997 it, it looked pretty inevitable at that point that it was it wasn't just a one term it, it was a two-term situation wasn't it because it had, Labour had such a big majority at that point in time that they could maybe afford to look a little bit more long term in a traditional government. So so it, I think it does depend on the circumstances and the size of majority a party coming in has. And if it has a very big majority, then it perhaps has a little bit more freedom to go big and go bold because they kind of have the support within the country to, to allow them to do that. It's easy to forget, isn't it, where we were in December 2019 when Boris was sitting on a majority of over 80 and he'd got Brexit done, you know, however you might feel about that. And then three months later, the wheels fell off when the pandemic hit. And, 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 yes. and everything then got defined by the pandemic and everything else, you know, the multiple ways they managed to find to shoot themselves in the feet thereafter. But we had that big majority again not that long ago, but it didn't last long, did it? No, not Good stuff, Andy. Really good to talk to you again. I, I guess we'll find out. We'll find out in a few weeks' time. But thanks very much for coming. So. It'll, it'll be exciting as always. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening. <laughs>